Hi, everybody. Uh, we're continuing our journey around the world, and now we're looking at the Russian domain, or as I like to refer to it, Russia and its neighbors. Um, this, um, this region includes Russia, along with its neighbors, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, and Armenia. This region is vast and natural, is vast, very large, and, re and resource rich, although it also includes some of the harshest climates found on Earth. In studying this region, you may find similarities between the rise of the United States and the rise of Russian culture. Certainly, the two countries have engaged politically and potentially militarily in a Cold War for most of the last half of the 20th century. This region has also experienced extremely rapid political and economic change in recent years, moving uneasily from an author authoritarian centrally planned economy, communism, towards democracy and a capitalist economy. Um, at the dawn of the new millennium, the region's economy was weak, its commitment to mock democracy uncertain, and Russia is certainly is using its military to try to keep two provinces, Chechnya and Dagestan, from seceding from, seceding from, uh, from Russia. Stability in the region appears to be a long way off. So let's uh, talk about the learning objectives for this region. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, by the end of the uh, end of the chapter or the end of the lectures and, and reading the chapter, you should be able to describe the varied physical and landscapes of Russia, of the Russian domain, and consider the Soviet legacy of environmental degradation. And much of that we'll cover in this particular lecture. Uh, trace the geopolitical frameworks from the early Russian Empire to the post-Soviet era. Contrast the urban, economic, and social development in the region during, the, during and after the Soviet era. Key concepts uh, that you should uh, be looking for as you read the chapter and listen to the lectures are, first of all, Podsol, Chernozem Soils, Taiga, Permafrost, Trans-Siberian Railroad, the BAM Railroad, Czars, Gulag Archipelago, Russification, Microrayons, Dhaka, Slavic peoples, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, Cossacks, Bolsheviks, Autonomous areas, Glasnost, Perestroika, the CIS, denuclearization, centralized economic planning. So, setting the boundaries, as I mentioned, we're talking about the northern half of Eurasia, uh, of the Eurasian continent. Actually, much of this uh, area lies uh, uh, north of 40 degrees north. And Binghamton, if you remember from previous lectures, Binghamton, New York, is at about 42 degrees north. So much of this region lies much further north than Binghamton, uh, New York. Actually, about 75% of this region lies north of the 49th parallel, which is the uh, border between the United States and Canada. So that gives you some idea. And we'll see on an upcoming map uh, exact, the exact location. Uh, uh, as I mentioned before, we're talking about Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Georgia, and Armenia, all former parts of the, uh, all parts of the former Soviet Union, or were parts of the former Soviet Union. Uh, as I mentioned before, this area has experienced rapid political and economic change, and there's a persisting Russian influence in the region. 
So here's the Russian domain that we're talking about. You can see it, it's, it's a huge territory. As a matter of fact, uh, Russia itself expands 11 time zones. So you compare that to the United States where we have three time zones, three different time zones, and you can see how, much, how large this area is. Uh, also, as I mentioned, much of the region it lies north of the uh, 49th parallel. And on this map, this is approximately the 50th, I believe this is the 50th parallel. So you can see that it lies very far north. And that creates some problems, as we'll be talking about uh, here shortly. So, um, and this is the 40th parallel here, I believe. Anyway, uh, it's difficult to read on this particular map. Uh, the important thing to understand is that it really lies very far north. So uh, let's take a look at um, the general description. As I mentioned, it's one of the world's largest regions, many and varied, many and varied natural resources. It has a high latitude continental climate for the most part, uh, limited opportunities for human settlement. Now let's look at some of the different um, the different uh, physical regions of, uh, of this uh, area. So the first area, the first part that we can talk about is the European West, and this includes European Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. So we usually look at the European West, and the dividing line is usually considered the Ural Mountains. Usually divides European Russia from what's sometimes referred to as Asia Russia. So essentially, we're looking to, at all the area west of the Ural Mountains, uh, which would also include Moldova. I'm sorry, I think I forgot Moldova. Uh, northern two thirds uh, of this region has low elevations, uh, a low topography, if you wish, large areas of poorly drained uh, land. And the reason it's poorly drained is because it receives limited. Uh, direct sunshine. And so uh, there's uh, when we have rainfall and snowfall, uh, that's limited evaporation. And so much of the water just lies uh, in this area. And so we find a lot of marshlands and things like that. As a matter of fact, the Pripyat Marsh, marsh the Pripyat Marsh uh, in, the, in southern Belarus, right in this area, is, uh, is Europe's largest wetland. Much of this area obviously has been glaciated in the past. Uh, if you recall, our glaciation line in Europe uh, extended right around this area in here. So you can, t uh, much of this area has been glaciated in the past. The southern part, uh, which is, has not been uh, glaciated, is more hilly, especially down in this area. Okay, um, is more hilly. Uh, and the, uh, we also have some mountains in the extreme south, which would be down in this area in here. And so this is the area that we would find the Ca Caucasus Mountains, right in here, and also the Trans-Caucasus Mountains, which are this, this mountain range here. So these are the Caucasus Mountains that kind of separates this part of what used to be the former Soviet Union from what you, was the Soviet Union. So we have Georgia and, and Armenia down in this area. Okay, so that's pretty important to uh, understand. And uh, also, this area is, uh, has been kind of isolated, has a very different um, languages and cultures. There's a whole variety of different languages and cultures down in this area, in this relatively small area that we'll be talking about. 
Okay, so uh, let's talk about some of the port important rivers uh, that provides transportation. Um, uh, the, uh, we have the Dnieper and the Don rivers that flow into the Black Sea. So um, the Black, uh, so we have the Dnieper and the Don that flow into the Black Sea. Uh, we have the uh, West Davina River that flows into the Baltic Sea. Okay, the West Davina that flows into the Baltic Sea going up in this direction. Um, and then we have the North Davina that flows into the White Sea. And then one of the most important rivers is the Volga River that flows into, um, into the Caspian. And so this is the Volga River here. And the reason the Volga is, is important because we have a lot of our industrial cities that are located along the, um, along the uh, Volga River that we'll talk about when we talk about the population geography. The Volga River, all these rivers actually provide hydroelectric power uh, that are sources for energy, and they also obviously supply uh, domestic water for drinking. Uh, and the Volga River is really important also for the transportation route that it supplies, um, uh, as I mentioned, to the various uh, industrial cities along the, the rivers. Uh, the climate in this area, I'll talk a bit about the climate in this area, has cold winters and cool summers. Moscow the capital of, the, of, uh, of Russia, uh, has a climate similar to Minneapolis and Minnesota in the United States, but the summers are cooler. Uh, Simferpol, uh, near the Black Sea, is 20 degrees warmer than Moscow in the winter. So the Black Sea, so this is Simferpol, Sim, I'm sorry, Simferpol <laughs> along the Black Sea. Uh, this area actually uh, is moderated, as we'll see when we uh, look at some of the agricultural areas and actually look at the climate map, uh, is moderated by the waters of the Black Sea. And I should also point out that um, along this, uh, this entire area uh, is moderated by the, uh, by, the, uh, by the waters from the Black Sea. Okay, so it kind of has, uh, the temperatures are moderated. Okay. Uh, in the south, uh, let's see here, agriculture north of Moscow and St. Petersburg is too cool and soils are too poor uh, for agriculture. So in this region up in here, uh, it's too cool, the growing season's too short, and the soils are very poor to do agriculture. Belarus and Central European Russia have longer growing seasons and what are known as pod soils that are very acidic. Uh, and they're not very good soils, and those soils limit the farming potential as well. But they do are able to grow some grain, some potatoes. Uh, they also grow uh, animals uh, such as swine uh, and uh, cattle for meat, and also dairy farming is important. In the southern part of this area, down in this area, we have what are known as the Chernozem soils. Uh, and Chernozem soils are also sometimes referred to as black soils. Uh, and these are soils that are similar to what we would find in the uh, 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 Great Plains of the United States. Uh, they're very dark in color and also very rich in nutrients. Um, they're productive for commercial wheat, corn, sugar beets, and commercial meat. Near the Caspian Sea, uh, down in this area, um, we find um, almost desert-like conditions, uh, which uh, are very dry. But uh, they've irrigated some of these areas uh, to be able to grow cotton. 
Uh, let's take a look at the Ural Mountains region, uh, this area in here. Okay, the Ural Mountains, as I mentioned, separate European Russia from Siberia, or what's sometimes referred to as Asia Russia. Uh, these are low mountains. The elevations are un usually under a thousand feet. Uh, the, they have cold, dry climate, uh, makes agriculture extremely difficult. The Ural Mountains are important for two reasons. Uh, they are heavily mineralized, um, and um, they're heavily mineralized in industrial minerals. And so when we take a look at our um, economic geography and our urban geography, we'll find uh, a lot of the industrial cities uh, have been planned uh, to do uh, industries such as Yekaterinburg and, this, and Chelyabinsk in this area. And I'm sorry, my, my Russian is not that great. So if I pronounce some of these names, uh, I may not be pronouncing them absolutely correctly. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, it once marked the, east, uh, the eastern cultural boundary of the Russian region. Siberia, as you can see here, this is Siberia out in here. We have the West Siberian Plain and then Siberia here. Um, Siberia lies to the east and extends for thousands of miles. There's three important rivers, uh, the Ob, the Yenisei, and the Lena. Uh, this is the Ob, this is the Yenisei, uh, and this is your Lena in here, okay, uh, rivers. Uh, and these are three very important rivers. And these rivers actually all flow northward um, into uh, the Arctic Ocean. So let's talk about the West Siberian Plain. Uh, the West Siberian Plain is a lowland, it's relatively flat, and it contains actually a lot of oil. And so uh, a lot of oil and natural gas can be found in the West Siberian, West Siberian Plain. It's estimated that this area may contain as much oil as the Persian Gulf region. The Central Siberian Highlands in this area here uh, is a plateau. It's about 1,600 feet above sea level. And then we have the northern highlands as well in this area. So this would be the northern uh, highlands of Siberia over in this area here. And you can see we also have some other highlands in this area also. Um, Lake Baikal, which is down in here, uh, is the world's largest reserve of fresh water. It's 400 miles long, and you can see it's an elongated lake formed by glaciers. Uh, 400 miles long, it's 5,300 uh, feet deep, so it's about a mile deep, okay? And that's what makes it the lar world's largest um, reserve of fresh water. It's not necessarily uh, the, the size in square miles, but the depth that makes it uh, home to, uh, or makes it, uh, one of the, makes it the world's largest reserve of fresh water. Uh, it's home to many unique species, including the world's only freshwater seal can be found in Lake Baikal. The climate in this region, the average January daily, average January daily low temperatures range from about range from 58 degrees below zero, 58 degrees Fahrenheit below zero, and very very young. Uh, out in this area in here, sorry, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce it, to minus 6 degrees Fahrenheit in Irkutsk. And Irkutsk is down here along Lake Baikal. Um, so obviously as you move further south, the temperatures moderate. Uh, precipitation 
is less than 20 inches annually, but falls mostly in the summertime. So we tend to think of this area, you know, we tend to think of Siberia as, uh, it is obviously very cold, but we, uh, it also does not receive that much rainfall. Um, vegetation in this area is mostly tundra vegetation. It's characterized by mosses, lichens, and a few ground-hugging flowering plants in the north. The Siberian taiga is a coniferous forest that lies south of the tundra. So we would find the tundra up in this area, and then we would find the taiga down in this area. And I, I have a vegetation map and a climate map that will illustrate this uh, more clearly uh, in an upcoming slide. But I wanted to give you some idea while we had this map in front of us. Uh, we have more than 20% of the world's forests are found in this region. So, again, that gives you an indication of the vast size of this area if we're going to find 20% of all the world's forests located here. Uh, and uh, most trees uh, are small and slow growing, and particularly in the, uh, in the northern part of what's known as the uh, taiga. Uh, and then as you move further south, uh, we have a longer growing season, uh, and the trees tend to be a little bit taller. Uh, and obviously, obviously, this entire region has a very harsh climate and uh, poor soils uh, for growing any sorts of agriculture. So farming is extremely limited and localized, and 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 it's localized. And we can find marginal wheat and potato uh, crops grown in this area. Permafrost in the east. Okay, uh, in the east of the region. Permafrost is a cold climate condition of unstable, seasonally frozen ground that limits the growth of vegetation. Permafrost makes construction, even of, the, uh, even of simple railroad tracks, very difficult because permafrost, when it does, uh, um, the, the upper layers may actually thaw out during warmer periods, but it only thaws out to a relatively uh, shallow depth, maybe uh, a foot or two at the most, and it's very unstable because it becomes um, it's uh, it's unstable in the sense that it shifts very easily. So it's very difficult to build any buildings and even railroad tracks. Uh, you know, they'll shift and and break. South southwestern Siberia is the only part of the region where farming is possible at all. So down in uh, this area, down in here southwestern part. Okay, let's talk about the Russian Far East, and the Russian Far East would be over in this area. Okay, uh, the, um, the, uh, this is the area around Vladivostok, which is down in here, and as I pointed out, down in this area as well. Um, it's about the same latitude of New England in North America, so that gives you some sense of what the climate might be like. We're talking about the Usuri and, and the Amur uh, River Valley. So this is the Usuri River Valley in here, and this is the Amur River Valley here. And the Amur River um, uh, is the actually the border forms the border between uh, Russia and China uh, for quite some distance. Okay. Um, in this area, we can find mixed live crop and livestock farming. Uh, so crops are grown to feed livestock. So you could find for, uh, corn and, uh, and soybeans and other things that would be used to feed livestock. And you'll also find um, crops that humans will uh, consume as well. 
Uh, as I mentioned, the Amur River forms much of the Russia-China border, it's a, and the Amur River is the seventh longest river in the world. Uh, the types of um, vegetation that you would find in this area would be uh, conifers, which are cone-bearing trees, your, uh, your pine trees and things like that, taiga, and Asian hardwood. Okay, so let's move on to talk about the Caucasus region and the Transcaucasus region. Um, the Caucasus region, as I'm pointing out here, is in the uh, extreme southern portion of European Russia. Um, in some areas, it has a flat terrain uh, and hills. Uh, flat terrain, hills, and the Caucasus Mountains can all be found in this area. The Caucasus Mountains uh, mark Russia's uh, southern boundary. The highest, peaks, the highest peak is Mount Elborus, which is about 18,000 feet in elevation. So you can see these are some pretty high mountains in this area. Um, and the Carpathians are not far away from here. So this actually might be considered a continuation of the Alpine mountain uh, area that we talked about in Europe. Uh, Georgia and Armenia are in the Transcaucasus. And Transcaucasus mean, uh, really means across the Caucasus. So uh, this would be the Transcaucasus area down in here. Uh, this area has extensive low plateaus, a smaller mountain range, the lower Caucasus, okay, right in here, um, in southern Georgia and, uh, and between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Uh, further south, there are some diverse high, uh, uplands. The climate in this area, uh, we have high rainfall in the west, in this area in here, because of uh, moisture coming in off of the Black Sea. Uh, and then we have our, the eastern valleys along the Caspian in this area are going to be uh, semi are going to be arid or semi-arid. So agriculture is possible in this region. The fertile alluvial uh, soils along the Black Sea in Georgia, uh, particularly in the fertile alluvial soils along the Black Sea in Georgia. Armenia is drier and produces grains, uh, potatoes, and fruits. So. Uh, these are some of the uh, images of Russia, and I actually should go back and point out the Kamchatka um, Peninsula for you, and I'll do that on the map. Uh, we're talking about this peninsula right here, okay, for the Champ, um, the uh, Kamchatka Peninsula. And so these are some images, uh, uh, as you can see. Beautiful landscape here, but you can tell that it's very cold because we see very few trees. So this would be a kind of a tundra uh, type of um, uh, landscape here, and you can even see some glaciers back here in the upper mount uh, in the hills as well. And evidently, there's some wonderful fishing in this uh, in this lake here. Uh, and then you can see this is um, Moscow which has become obviously an international business center. It's an extremely important city, obviously, as, as Russia's capital, and it's also an important uh, business center. Uh, let's talk about some of the environmental issues in Russia. It really, Russia has a very devastated uh, environment in lots of different places, uh, because much like uh, the Eastern European countries, um, the uh, uh, the goal during the Soviet era was to industrialize as rapidly as possible, and there was very little consideration given to environmental issues. So this region has some of the world's most severe environmental degradation. Incl sources include industrialization, urbanization, 
careless resource extraction, and nuclear energy production. And, and many of these problems have um, a global impact. Uh, so for example, uh, the Chernobyl uh, nuclear accident back in the 1980s, uh, some of that, uh, uh, some of the uh, pollution from that accident actually had global implications as it spread into other parts of the world, particularly into, into Europe and then even as far as the west coast of the United States. Air and water pollution. Uh, air pollution is linked to large clusters of industrial factories in limited areas with limited environmental controls. Um, uh, to fuel the factories, there was reliance on abundant, uh, locally abundant coal, which increases its problem. Sulfur and heavy metals uh, spread as far away as Canada. So Norilsk, I'm going to point that out right here. Uh, in Western Siberia, uh, male life expectancy uh, is uh, only about 50 years. Norilsk is considered to be the largest single source of air pollution in the world, believe it or not. And the reason for that is because they have um, very large nickel and copper smelters. Magnitogorsk, I'm not sure if Magnitogorsk is on this map, but Mag Magnitogorsk is down uh, in this area. Uh, and had, uh, experiences black snow uh, because of the pollution. The air gets up into the, uh, or the pollution gets up into the atmosphere, and when the precipitation falls, it falls as um, the, the snow falls as, as black, if you can imagine that. Um, I already mentioned Chernobyl was the world's uh, worst nuclear accident. It has left a deadly landscape that will persist in this region for, for many generations. It's estimated something like 25% um, of the uh, land area in Belarus is unusable uh, because of the Chernobyl nuclear accident and the fallout from that nuclear accident. Um, let's see. Uh, industrial pollution, uh, raw sewage, oil spills, and seepage pollute uh, the water as well. In the 1950s and 1960s, uh, pulp and paper factories built on the shores of uh, Lake Baikal caused a lot of problems in that lake as well, water pollution. Factory discharges polluted the lake. Since then, pollution has been reduced, but it's still a problem. Um, so let's, I, I really do want to talk about some of these other problems. And you can see most of the rivers in this area are polluted, and that has uh, devastated the aquatic life as well as the um, plant life in, in most all of these rivers uh, in, in the former Soviet Union. So I've already pointed out in the real scale. I also want to point out this area up in here, uh, Nevaya Zem, Zemula. Uh, decades of unregulated dumping of nuclear waste, as you can see, have poisoned the waters off the northern island of uh, uh, Novaya Zemlya. Uh, it, and it's actually interesting. I mean, I've read uh, articles where it talks about how the, the uh, Russian military, the Soviet military, used to uh, sink its uh, uh, out-of-date uh, nuclear submarines up in this area as well to contribute to uh, the nuclear... Uh, to the uh, problems with uh, the nuclear dumping. And then obviously they, uh, uh, from nuclear weapons testing, all sorts of nuclear uh, and nuclear power plants, they dump, they would just dump all that stuff into the sea up in here. Um, you can see due to, uh, there's, a, there's a fear that the 
global warming uh, may impact the, the Siberian uh, permafrost. Uh, warming, as you can read here, warming climates may thaw large areas of Siberian permafrost, releasing additional carbon into the Earth's atmosphere, which will then obviously, obviously also contribute uh, to even more global warming. So let's talk about the nuclear threat a little bit. Uh, the nuclear threat, uh, Soviet Union, um, the former Soviet Union, had aggressive nuclear weapons and energy program. Environmental safety was ignored. Nuclear weapons used for seismic experiments, oil exploration, and dam building. Nuclear waste were carelessly dumped, and one of those areas was up in here, as I pointed out uh, before. Uh, many aging nuclear reactors also exist in this area. Uh, and I've already mentioned the 1986 meltdown in Chernobyl and the fact that 25% of the land area of Belarus is unusable due to the nuclear uh, fallout. Uh, what's actually interesting uh, with all of this uh, in the Soviet Union, it's sometimes referred to as the uh, post-Soviet paradox, uh, the demise of the Soviet Union has somewhat improved the environment, believe it or not, uh, mainly because of the economic decline. Many of the factories have been closed down and shut down as, as uh, uh, Russia has experienced privatization. And many of the factories obviously were uh, inefficient, uh, and so uh, the new owners would uh, just close the factories down. So um, um, that has been a positive for the environment. Obviously, it's not been so good for the workers. Uh, advanced pollution control technology has been introduced into the region, which has also helped the environment somewhat. Nuclear warhead storage has been consolidated and, and improved. And the younger people of the area uh, have a greater environmental concerns and push for, are pushing for greater envi environmental regulations. But the breakdown of the central government results in unregulated dumping. Uh, so need for more money. There's a need for uh, money uh, uh, in the region to help improve the environment as well. So this is Lake Baikal that we talked about. This is an image. As you can see, it's an elongated lake. Uh, it has some industrial pollution, mainly from the Siberian uh, lumber exploitation. As you can see, this is Siberian lumber and forest destruction in the area. Um, and this uh, lumber is turned into pulpwood, turned into paper and, and other uh, lumber products as well. Uh, we've already talked about these various uh, areas. Uh, I just wanted to uh, emphasize, we've talked about the European West, we've talked about the Europe Ural Mountains and, Sy uh, and Siberia. We talked about the taiga and permafrost. So I'm not going to talk about those again. Uh, and we talked about the um, Russian Far East and the Caucasus and the Trans-Caucasus. So I'm not going to talk about those again. But you can see uh, this would be the um, forested area in Siberia. And you can see the forest just extend for thousands upon thousands of miles. And this obviously would be a river that's flowing through the region. Now, here's the climate map of the region. And I just want to talk a little bit more. I've already uh, talked about the climate, but I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about the climate uh, since we have the climate map in front of us. 
So up in this area, we would have our very cold climate. This would be our tundra, where we have very little vegetation that grows at all, as I mentioned before. We might find some low-lying uh, lichens and mosses and things like that, but typically no trees or anything like that. Uh, then to the south of that uh, is when we start to see some vegetation. So we have our, um, first of all, we have our DFC or our DFD climate up here in the very um, northeastern part. And as you can see, the DFD climate is subarctic, dry winters, very cold. Uh, subarctic, dry winters that are very cold. Okay, so probably. Uh, permafrost, probably not too much vegetation in this area as well. Then we have our DFC climate, subarctic, short and cool summer. So these are the areas where we might start to see uh, some trees starting to grow and they typically would be sh very short uh, coniferous trees and the same way over in this area in here. And then of course as we move further south into this DFC, in this DFC climate is where we start to see the really forested areas uh, where we would see the very expansive forested um, areas. Uh, so then we come down into our DFB climates. As you can see here, our DFB climates are humid continental. So rainfall with uh, and during the summers, uh, but dry winters and uh, cool summers. So once again, again, these areas might be good for a little bit of agriculture uh, probably very limited in nature, probably maybe some local areas where uh, agriculture would be good, but very extensive forested areas as well. And then uh, our DFB, uh, that would be this area again, uh, far eastern part of uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union. And again, in along some of these river valleys, the Uzuri River Valley and the Amur River Valley, we would find some uh, agriculture that takes place. And then as we move first, further south, we move into what's known as our BSK climates, mid-latitude cl uh, steppe climate. So these climates would actually be relatively dry, uh, probably mostly grasslands. Uh, so these areas would be good for doing some agriculture, such as wheat, other grains, and things like that. Maybe in some localized areas, some vegetables, and so forth. Okay. Uh, so those are the climate uh, areas of the former Soviet Union, uh, of Russia and the former Soviet countries that I wanted to point out to you. Oh, uh, one that I missed here, I'm sorry, uh, the CFA climate right along the Black Sea. And this is a humid subtropical without a dry season and hot summer. So this area actually receives some pretty decent rainfall for agriculture as well. And then these are our agricultural regions. So as I mentioned in the previous map up here, we have tundra, we have the Russian taiga, uh, we have diversified agriculture, as I mentioned, along the Amur rivers and the uh, Uzuri rivers in the Russian Far East. Okay, we have large-scale grain farming, probably mostly wheat farming in this area, but we could also have see some corn and other types of grains grown in this area as well, maybe soybeans and things like that uh, to feed cattle. Uh, let's see, uh, what else do we have here? Then we have our urban truck farming. Uh, truck farming is really vegetables that are grown uh, largely near our large urban areas and the vegetables would be grown uh, for the uh, urban residents to consume. You can see that's the case here around Moscow, around St. Petersburg, and around some of the other cities 
in uh, Russia. And then we have our humid subtropical climates uh, right along the Black Sea that I pointed out that receives some decent rainfall. And that would be specialized uh, types of agriculture, probably mostly things like um, uh, tree crops such as uh, grapes and uh, vegetables, of course, would be grown, citrus fruits, uh, maybe dates and things like that. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, the agricultural regions and the climate regions and the various uh, physical regions of Russia and the former Soviet Union. Uh, again, we see some of the diverse landscapes. These, this is in the Ukraine, agriculturally productive land. This is a wheat field. And then this is the Caucasus Mountains, which are very rugged borderlands. And then uh, some other landscapes. This is in Sochi, which will be hosting uh, the Winter, Olympic, uh, Winter Olympics. And actually, Sochi itself has a relatively mild climate, so we probably won't see too many of the actual sporting events uh, occurring here. But you can see the mountains in the background. This is where most of the skiing and things like that will be occurring uh, for, uh, for the Olympics. Uh, we'll probably see most of the indoor uh, things that occur indoors uh, in Sochi itself, such as the um, such as the uh, uh, skating and, and things like that. Uh, and in in clearing uh, areas in the mountains for uh, the skiing and things like that, the, there's a concern for um, uh, uh, environmental damage, uh, particularly when we remove the trees and things like that, and then we start to see erosion. Okay, so that's the uh, environmental geography, the physical and environmental geography of Russia and its neighbors, or the Russian domain. Uh, when we come back for the second lecture, we'll talk about the population and settlement geography and the cultural geography of the region.